Welcome to Local Matters, a service of LM Communications Radio Group, brought to you by Citizens Commerce Bank. Switch one time for a lifetime. I'm here with my co-host, Alan Stein, and our guests, Dr. Chris Christensen and Matt Christensen of Critter Control. It's almost summertime, and it's probably time to talk about bugs. What do well, you think? Well, as a matter of fact, that's a good topic for this week. And, uh, you know, there's so many things that happen uh, in the insect world. It changes from season to season to season. That's why we have our friends from Truly Nolan Critter Control to tell us how to manage this See this time of season. This we have Dr. Chris Christensen and Matt Christensen. Hi, how are you guys today? Great. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well. Welcome back into uh, the featured business of the week. We really appreciate you guys coming back. Super. Great well, what's here. the difference between spring and summer? I know we talked about little critters. The critters getting bigger and more uh, intense in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, springtime is when all the bugs and uh, wildlife are coming back to life. Um, going to start seeing the populations rise, obviously, as they are uh, getting their plans together for the summer season. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these insects have established themselves. We've got ants. We've got uh, stinging insects out there. Um, lady beetles. But, I mean, bugs are all over the place. I think the bees are bigger than they have been. I saw one the size of a canned ham a couple of days ago. That <laughs> was a carpenter bee, probably. <laughs> they, they are getting more that aggressive. That is the canned ham species, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you a question about that, because uh, as, as Matt just said, springtime and into the summer is when we start seeing them again. Just the basics for our, our listeners out there, many of them hibernate. Is that the right word, over the winter? Actually, over winter. Uh, it's called it, over winter. Right, but right. They're, they're relatively dormant. We don't see them. Correct. And so talk to us about, because we've had so many consecutive, relatively mild winters. How does that impact the populations of all the insects? Well, the thought process is if, if it's super cold outside, that that will kill off a lot of these insects that are overwintering inside of a structure. And it's not necessarily true. There's, it isn't true? No. There, there's, I think it was in USA Today, there's a report couple months ago about how the polar vortex was going to wipe out millions or billions of, of stink bugs as well as other insects and uh, it's it's just a headline so is that just an old wives tale we just grew up with i guess well and 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 dr chris could probably expound on this more than i but you know insects prepare for the winter time they actually produce a type of antifreeze hmm. um that will sustain their body and keep them from freezing tight or solid Wow, no kidding. Well, That's like, how actually, they can, they can freeze solid, but they, having all that glycerol in their in their cells prevent prevents uh, crystals from forming, and the crystals are what kill you. They break your cell walls, and you start kind of oozing. Well, to can, death. can we analyze that early on to kind of determine? Do they give us some sort of an idea of what the winter's going to be like? Well, you know, you've got the old wives' tale about the banded woolly bear yeah i never have figured out which is which whether it's the wide band means you're going to have a bad winter or, or <laughs> wide band means you're going to have an easy winter but no i don't think so um you know the there are other aspects of winter time that kill off more insects uh, a, a, a very wet season may uh, cause a, a high mortality rate there's gonna be a high mortality rate anyhow Right. Uh, 
cold weather, dry weather can do the same thing. Um, and so we, and we have a relatively few that will get into the house for the winter. Uh, we see, uh, things like cluster flies, Asian lady beetles, the, uh, brown marmorated stink bug, uh, uh, box elder bugs, and, um, sometimes face flies when, and you know, but there's millions of other insects that are trying to make it through the winter and other, in other locations, other hidden and right. protected locations. Some overwinter as eggs, some overwinter as larvae, some overwinter, uh, don't overwinter at all and just fly back in, in the spring things like the monarch butterfly and others, there's a whole raft of butterflies that migrate from the South to the uh, more temperate regions. That's all very interesting to me. And so we, you know, when we're talking about how the insects are going to be affecting us into the spring and summer, we really can't, as you just said, make a prediction based on what the winter weather was. But in any case, here we are, and we've got them, and we're, we're starting to see them. And Skip just said he saw some big uh, uh, carpenter bees lately. Let, let's talk about carpenter bees and... and uh, some paper wasps. Let me talk about carpenter bees a minute. You know, we'll have people say, man, I've got carpenter bees worse than I've ever had them before. And, uh, they're probably right, but not because there's more carpenter bees, but because they have a larger population living at their location. Cause the, the adult carpenter bees overwinter in the, the gallery. And as, and then, and then they expand, you know, extend those galleries or create new galleries in that same area. They're imprinted on that building. So eventually you're going to have a cloud of carpenter bees around your house. That's when people decide, well, I'm going to take care of this problem. If, if they would be much better off if they took care of that issue when they saw three carpenter bees right? and, and one or two holes, take care of that. You've knocked that gene pool for a loop and you may not have them again for 10 years. And I see that over and over again where we go out and take care of a log cabin, for instance, or a a cedar-sided house that's got a great population of carpenter bees. And, you know, you end up uh, treating six or seven hundred holes. And uh, then the next year you treat maybe a hundred. And the year after that, maybe ten. And after that, you don't even get a call from the customer because the situation is pretty much under control. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you can eliminate your service uh, at right. some point, right? In a, in Which a, is what si- we strive for. In that situation, <clears throat> that's exactly what you're striving for. It's not, it's not the kind of a service that you have a, a, a recurring type service. Right. Uh, carpenter bees have one generation per year. The ones you see in the spring are the ones flying around are the ones that made it through the winter. And then their children, if you will, the ones that, that uh, emerge from the galleries after the adults have died, they're going to spend the summer doing what carpenter bees do, you know, going down to the pool, playing bridge, hanging out, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then they'll overwinter in those galleries the follow, that following winter. And are, are paper wasps, do we kind of look at the same thing? Paper wasps overwinter as mated females. In the in the fall, you'll see large numbers of huge, big uh, wasps uh, coming off those nests, and they the females mate with the males. The males then pretty much die. Uh, the females 
over winter as a mated female, and that is the foundress for the the nest you see the following year. And that's the same way with the hornets, with the yellow jackets. Uh, they're going to overwinter as a mated female. And they sometimes will be found in our homes. Uh, we had a situation at a, a small university that we service. And for years, they dealt with these paper wasp adults coming down into the rooms of the kids that lived on the top floor. Well, they were being attracted to the can lights and that sort of thing. But they were they were overwintering in this attic that was above that that area, and they had I don't know about millions, but you know maybe ten fifteen thousand wasps up there every year. And oh we worked gosh. with them for years trying to say, look, you want to solve this problem? You got to seal up the entry holes. Finally, they they said, okay, let's go ahead and do it. And we got a lift. We went around that building. We sealed all those gaps. We haven't heard from them since. That problem has been solved. So all of these are solvable problems. Oh, absolutely. There, there's not a single one of these, as I understand your business, that cannot be finally solved. Is that correct? That, ab- absolutely. But it's it's more of a preventive thing with right. things like paper wasps and yellow jackets and things like that. I've heard that uh, the, the the city isn't accepting recycling of paper wasps anymore either. <laughs> well, they weren't taking too many paper wasps to start with. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's very funny. Nope, nope. <laughs> Another thing. You're going to cut that out, right, Skip? Yeah, yeah we can edit this <laughs> no, out. No, right? no, we can't. <laughs> let's he, move on. He's the editor. <laughs> now, let's talk about my wife loves mulch. And every, about this time of year, she goes, go get me more bags of mulch. Is there something that we could be introducing into our uh, home in that mulch? And what should we do about that? Well, yeah, there's there's possibility. Uh, depends on where you get your mulch. If you're getting your majority of your mulch is bagged, prepackaged, um, you know, sometimes that stuff has been treated um, for insects. Sometimes hasn't. Uh, if you get some of these uh, from from um, uh, a bulk distribution place uh, you get a big truckload brought to your like house from the, if you go down where the city's yeah they did this, right. this saturday yeah right you know that's that's just you know donated shredded hardwoods and things like that you know sometimes that's been infested by termites um sometimes that pile has been sitting in there that location long enough that that insects like ants can can get into the mulch and then they take a big scoop and bring it to your house start spreading it around well there's a possibility you could have ants introduced around the place Mm -hmm. Um, so you know it's it's hard to bet uh, where you're getting it from um there's a big scare uh what was it after uh, the hurricane in 05 you know there's a threat that all the cypress mulch was coming up from new orleans and it was bringing termites with them and for you know all these different termites we don't usually deal with right yeah that wasn't happening yeah i mean it's it it sometimes turns into turns out to be wives tales but you know you we go out to houses and we peel back the uh, the mulch layer, getting down to the dirt layer, and you can find beetles underneath there. You can find ants. Uh, you may get down to the soil level and find termites. It's not indicative that they came in with the with the mulch, right? But is there a possibility? Well, there's always a possibility. So what do we do? Well, you know, get somebody out there to to, to inspect and see what's going on. Um, you know, all, a lot of this stuff can be uh, taken care of by by a you know, we offer quarterly services or monthly services um, to, to stay on top of issues like this around the house. 
um, you know, our, our plan of action is do most of our chemical treatment on the outside of the house and prevent these, these bugs from getting in, and that reduces the amount of pesticides that we have to use inside of the home. Yeah. We so, got, uh, unle- I'm sorry, Skip, but unless, from what I'm hearing Matt say, unless you're buying bags that are have been treated, you probably ought to consider a treatment option from critter control it, in any case. Yeah, it'd be a good idea. If you if you got a you got a you know quarter ton of mulch dumped in, dumped into your driveway right. and you've been working on it all weekend, you know, distribute distributing it out, then you, you may have seen some bugs in there. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's not a bad idea to at least have somebody have us come out and check it out and and uh, gotcha. see, see what kind of issues might arise. Okay. We had our uh, house re uh, sided couple of years back and they they stopped in the middle of it and said you've got termites and we called somebody and they came out and know their ants how what's the difference between termites and ants i hope you'll call critter control well that's time. what yeah, we should have done call and olin come out there um so there's there's some you know physical differences obviously there's physiological differences as well but um this time of year is when we have like termite swarmers and ant swarmers showing up around houses those are the those are the new reproductives. Those are going to end up being the new queens of a new colony. Their job is to go establish that new colony. So how do they do that best? By flying. Um, most of the time, it ends up being a termite that we're dealing with. Um, but a winged bug is a winged bug. Mm-hmm. Right. Part, they all look alike. So there's distinct differences. So as far as, like, being able to physically see, um, termite swarmers and ant swarmers all have four wings. Termite swarmers have wings that are equal length, meaning the top the top wing will be the same length as the bottom wing. Hmm. Whereas ants, winged ants, their wings are not the same length at all. Um, so, so that's one. Um, the body types, um, a termite swarmer basically looks like a little cigar, uh, whereas an ant will have a pinched waist. Uh, they're hymenopterous pests, which means pinched waist. And so that's another way to tell them. Now, the other way to tell the difference is by their antenna. Ants have elbowed antenna, meaning the, the antenna come out of their head and then, you know, for a short distance and then almost basically a 90-degree angle up, whereas termites have just straight antenna. They don't get FM as good. They don't. They don't. They're more, <laughs> F, uh, more AM. <laughs> so, you know, now to the, to the layperson out there, are they going to go through the trouble of trying to discover which which one it is probably not mm-hmm. but so, if you see a swarm it'll it's if you just know these two or three basic things you can figure it out you can figure it out even if you can't uh whether it's ants or termites you still don't want that around your that's house. right so the long and the short of it is you're going to need a pest control uh, person to come out and check it out properly identify it then they can give you you know we can give you the proper methodologies to remediate that issue you're hearing Local Matters, a service of the LM Communications Radio Group, brought to you by Citizens Commerce Bank. Switch one time for a lifetime. I want to switch uh, gears a little bit and talk about bats. There's been a lot of conversation uh, about bats this year and in last year, too. Every year. Yeah. We love bats. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about bats. Dr. Chris? Well, the uh, big brown bat is the common bat that we find uh, invading structures in central Kentucky and probably this whole region. A big brown bat is uh, not necessarily that big. The bat itself is about the size of a mouse with wingspan at probably six, eight inches. They are insect feeders. They're a very, very uh, uh, good 
uh, animal. They're uh, beneficial. They eat their weight in insects just about every night. So we don't necessarily want to kill them. What we do is we uh, inspect the home, figure out how the bats are getting in, look at all the potential entry points for the bats, and then what we're going to do is we're going to seal all those up except the exit point or the place where the bats are going in and out on a regular basis. And then we'll put up what's called a bat escape valve, which is a one-way valve that allows them to leave but not re-enter. Then when that's been up for a couple of weeks, we'll go take it down, check the attic, make sure there's still not bats up there, and, and seal that hole. Now there's a kind of a, a fly in that hole ointment in that uh, most of the time bats that are you know, living in a, an attic attic space are a maternal colony where the females are raising young up there. Bats are mammals. They have baby bats. They feed them, uh, you know, they, they drink milk just like other mammals. And so that female has those baby bats up there. They're, they're completely hairless. They're uh, helpless. And uh, so she's, she, comes, she flies out and feeds, comes back and feeds the young. During that period of time when those young are, are flightless, and that's generally uh, from about the 15th of May to the 15th of August here in central Kentucky, we, we do not use a bat escape valve. We do not do a bat exclusion at that period of time. Now, we may do some preparatory work where we'll go in and, and, and do some preliminary seal-ups, but we don't close that entrance and exit hole. If you do, you'll be sorry because those mother bats, they have that strong maternal instinct. They're going to try and get back into that house. And they most of the time end up getting back into the the uh, the main part of the house. The house, yeah. you know, the, the residential <laughs> part of the right. house. And that, that really gets people upset. And as Matt says, those baby bats, they're hungry. They start looking for mama, and they may end up in the house, come down through the attic into the living area of the home. So we we do not do bat work during that period of time. That's a company policy. Uh, the state fish and wildlife people really prefer you not to do it uh, during those uh, protected times. Uh, there's no law against it, I guess, but it just makes a lot of sense from a practical standpoint. It's a That's strong very suggestion. interesting to me. I, I obviously would never have thought about that. No, and and just to clarify, so we don't just we don't not do any bat work during those periods. We don't do evictions during that time period. So we can do the preliminary seal up during the summertime. Um, so we can get all that stuff done. So to that, eliminate their entry hole. Well, we're 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 whittling them down to one or two right. or three right. main entry right. holes. So not, not keeping them out, right. but eliminating they, the They, they the still mass. have access right. in and out like they normally do, and, and this way they can move in and out and, and be able to raise their young safely. Um, so you know, we'll, we put up the one-way escape valves after the August 15th deadline has run out, and that way we can be sure those babies have had enough time to grow up nice and strong. They're learning the ways of the bat. They're going out and doing nightly feeding so they can exit the structure with everybody else. That way no, no, nobody's left behind. Generally, though, bats are our friends. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Very yes. beneficial. They're and, you awesome. know, they're, they, they, every once in a while you'll find a bat that's rabid, uh, but it's not like the whole population is rabid. Right. And, and there's really nothing you can do about that. You're not going to vaccinate bats. You know, there's no oral vaccine that you can fly on for bat rabies uh so that's interesting to me chris uh it 
last summer, for example, there were a couple of reports uh, in Lexington mm-hmm. where a rabid bat had been found. Turns out that they there was only one of them that was really rabid. The other one they determined was not. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because you have that one, it's an aberration. It doesn't mean that the whole group of them are infected. Well, the, the population has got a, a small percentage that are rabid, and uh, there's not much you can do about that. And we have, I think we've already had a couple this year, haven't we, Matt? I know there was one report that came out uh, last week or the week before, you know, so early May, uh, about a woman out in her yard gardening. She saw something in the yard and didn't think anything of it and had her hand near it, went to pick this thing up, I guess, and discovered pretty quickly it was a bat because the bat bit her. Right. Of course, she didn't retain the bat for, for rabies testing. So when that happens, you have to go ahead and have the rabies vaccine uh, administered. Yeah. And, um, not as bad as it used to be way back in the in the twentieth century. I mean, it, it used to used way to be back. a series. <laughs> way back machine. Uh, Boy, these young kids, they yeah. have no respect. <laughs> That's right. I'm telling you. Thank you for referring to a 45 year old man as a young kid. <laughs> just a baby. Um, so it's just a series of shots in the arm nowadays. Uh, I, I think it, what maybe four four yeah. shots or something like I mean, that. I got it. And I got bit by that raccoon years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, by the way, if you find a bat and uh, it's kind of comatose like this one that this one, you you should not be finding a bat out in your yard in the daytime. You know, if you're gonna if you're concerned about it, carefully pick it up with a tongs or something. Put it in a plastic bag. Take it out to the livestock diagnostic lab, or take it to your local health department, and they'll have it evaluated for you. But they are very uh, uh, they're very quick on these re- on these evaluations. You're going to get something back in a in a couple of days. Matter of days. Yeah, well, because you know that's it, good advice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. When you're dealing with rabies, I mean, you. Need I think to common sense would probably tell us though that if you find one that's lethargic or comatose during the daytime uh, in your yard, you're you, you know likely there's something amiss there. Probably. Probably. Right. And we, that's something we do if we ever get called out for a for a bat in the living space. Once we find and, and recover that bat, we we uh, do take it to the lo- uh, diagnostic lab for testing um, to help ease the mind of the homeowner. And again, doing is there this a for fee so for long, that if if I find one and take it to the lab? No. Okay. That's, that's a state that, lab. Yeah, Great. That, that's included in the service fee for coming out there. So, but again, those those tests generally come back negative. Uh, for, yeah. for rabies. I don't think we've ever had one come back positive. I, I think you're right. I don't believe yeah. we've yeah. ever had one. A couple more things I want to touch on before we finish okay. our time here today. I, I do want to talk about um, pests uh, that may have some impact in, or interaction with our uh, family pets. And then I, w- I want to end up with a little conversation about mosquitoes. Uh, so, you know, take it away. Uh, pets. Um, so you have to feed them. Mm-hmm. You have to give them water. Yeah. Um, some folks prefer to do that on the inside of the house. Some folks prefer to do that on the outside of the house. There are literally millions of other animals and insects that prefer those same things. Um, people will call about ants inside of their kitchen, and then you find out it's right where the pet food bowl is. Uh, ants love protein, and and uh, 
pretty much makes up all the all the cat food and dog food out there. Yeah. You know? So it's a it's a free easy food source for them. They like water too. They need water. You'll find uh, odorous house ants in your kitchen sink, just gathered around a droplet of water down there in the bottom. Um, so both those items can be very very attractive. Now when it's outside, of course it'll attract other insects and everything. But if you don't pick up the food and water bowls before the end of the night, that also attracts wildlife. Um, skunks, raccoons, possums, feral cats, neighborhood cats, you know, whatever. That is a, an attractive food source and water source. They don't have to go searching for it anymore. They know it's going to be out there every single day, mm-hmm. uh, which also tends to make them want to stick closer to their food source. So they could get underneath a deck. You know, if they have digging abilities, they can dig underneath concrete slabs, dig down next to your uh, the foundation. Um, underneath a shed, whatever the case may be. They may even try to get into your house, get up into the attic, things like that, chimneys. So um, it's a good rule of thumb that if you're going to feed your, your pets and you're uh, you know, outside, leave it out for an amount of time. It doesn't need to be out all night. Um, pick it up before you go to bed that night and, and uh, put it back into the containers or empty the dishes out and, and leave those to dry. Inside, same thing. Pick up the food, bowls, dogs, don't necessarily need a midnight snack anyways they can wait until the morning maybe your dog but no. <laughs> mine got in the trash a few days ago well this is very interesting to me i mean you know we have three dogs and um we never take they're they're fed inside but i just leave them out you know never think Alan, of that i've had a number of situations where people have found these little black bugs crawling across their floor and uh, when I evaluated what they were, they turned out to be drugstore beetles. And I looked around and saw the pet bowl, and I, I said to the lady, I said, you know, you have a bunch of dog food under your cabinets. And she goes, well, how'd it get there? So well, the mice, t- mice took it there. Yeah. She said, well, I didn't see any mice. I said, that, that's their job. They're not supposed to be seen. We took about 35 pounds of dog food out from under that cabinet. Wow. 35 pounds Absolutely. of dog food. Absolutely, and this is not an unusual situation. So yeah. feeding your dogs the way Matt suggested, giving them a prescribed amount, letting them eat, and uh, and getting, if, if there's any left, getting it back, put it back in the container, whatever. But uh, keep all your pet food uh, in uh, Sealed, tightly covered yeah. containers, containers, preferably sure. metal. And uh, you're going to have a lot less problems with these storms. Ours are in plastic. Is that not as good? Oh, it's going to be fine. Okay. You know, I mean, you don't know if something's chewed through the plastic. Right, right. So that's not a big deal. Wow, that's really good stuff. That's why our, our listeners need to pay attention here. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right, let's have a conversation about mosquitoes, too. So mosquito season is here. Uh, actually, I got bit by a mosquito at my house uh, back in March. That's early. Kind of early. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I slapped my leg, and there, there it was. So. Um, so this is the time of year. The rains are starting to slow down. It's warming up a lot. This is when they get super active. Um, so you need to be vigilant about uh, some things around your house, making sure that there's, A, no standing stagnant water. That is uh, the number one attractive thing in your, in your yard. To a mis- female mosquito, she will lay her eggs in that in that uh, dank water, um, and then the larvae live under the water. They have siphon tubes that they can come up and break the surface of the water to breathe. Uh, we kind of lovingly call them wrigglers because when you see them in a little pool of water, that's that's what they do. They wriggle around. Yeah. 
Um, I was out at a commercial property on Friday doing a service, and there was a five-gallon bucket of water there. And sure enough, it looked pretty clear, like it was clear water. There's probably about 25, 30 wrigglers right up at the surface. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't even have to necessarily be dank, stagnant water. It can be crystal clear. Um, But eliminating those uh, standing water sources will be a big help to reducing the amounts of mosquitoes that are harbored around your home. Um, You know, they like to to hang out on the undersides of foliage, of leaves, uh, blades of grass, things like that. that way they can be out of the sunlight or the rain or whatever the case may be, and they can make a quick attack on, on us. Um, you know, Some of the places that they will breed around a home, like Matt said, that five-gallon bucket you got sitting behind the garage that you didn't turn over, it fills up with water. That water doesn't evaporate. It, it, you're going to raise mosquitoes in that. Uh, wheelbarrows that aren't flipped over. Uh, uh, Faucets that drip, leak. Gutters that are clogged. You'll yep. see a gutter that's clogged. Uh, bird baths. Uh, just a kid's uh, sand bucket can have enough water in it to raise some mosquitoes. How does then, how does citronella work? Is that is that something you guys do as well? No, citronella is basically a repellent. You know, it just you know, and it's that help really, out in the. It's in, not really that good a repellent. Yeah, though, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but you the citronella candles. You know, they sell those things in, in those little buckets, and you put light it and set it under the table when you're eating dinner outside, and it helps to move some mosquitoes away. Right. Hmm. But uh, these these uh, breeding sites that Matt was talking about, uh, mud puddles, uh, tree holes, uh, a place in a fork of a tree where there's mud water that'll accumulate there. There's a branch that's rotted out. Uh, uh, the water will accumulate in that in that hollow tree, and there's species of mosquitoes that live in that, and they are they're they're people feeders, and they, some of them transmit diseases as well. And that's the main reason you want to take care of mosquitoes because they are. Sounds like the number one tip though is to avoid any standing or, Absolutely. or collected you know, water. You, you just look for those kinds of things in your in your around your house. Now, how do you service uh, typically service a, a, a home or a yard? For mosquitoes, how about it, Pat? We uh, uh, we'll walk around. We have these machines. Uh, kind of looks like a leaf blower, but it's been specially modified for the industry of mosquito treatment. So we can apply a uh, long-term residual uh, insecticide to the undersides of leaves and foliage and things like that. We don't treat around flowering uh, bushes, shrubs, flowers, etc., because you know we don't want to knock out pollinators. Um, so we try to avoid those areas. But, you know, trees, bushes, shrubs, anything that's not flowering has some good, thick, dense vegetation uh, or great hiding places. And then, again, the undersides of established tree leaves. So we try to apply this uh, material onto those areas where they're going to hang out so that when they go to hide from the rain or something, they're coming in contact with a, with a chemical that's going to knock them out. Um, and they've got some new technologies coming out with different kinds of uh, treatment methodologies that we'll be looking into, uh, possibly including into our arsenal somewhere down the line. But right now, the best thing to do is, A, eliminate the, the, the water, standing water around there. If we can't eliminate it, we do have chemical that we can put into the water that will eliminate the, the larvae. Um, and then getting treatment about once a month usually is sufficient around the house. Um, to to reduce the populations. We're mm-hmm. not going to stop them from flying in from other areas. 
but the areas where they like to hang out, possibly just just you know relax and, and take a break, um, those are the areas we try to hit and knock out the population. And uh, because this is our featured business of the week, mm-hmm. you're offering a special for our podcast listeners. We are. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. I thought, I, I thought I'd give you that. We, we came up with this bright idea. <laughs> um, so yes, you know we we offer mosquito treatments either as a standalone treatment or as part of a package with like our Four Seasons customers. I know we've talked about that before. Um, So our offer is this. If you call up our office and schedule a treatment for mosquitoes, mention this podcast when you call, and we'll service your yard up to one acre for $79 a month. Our regular price is $99 a month. Anything above an acre, we have to inspect, and we can can customize a price and a plan for you at that point. So all you got to do is mention the podcast, and you're getting 20% off. Absolutely. Right. Pretty darn pretty, good. Pretty easy. Now, before before we go, the the you occasionally see an insect that you've never seen before. When you see that, I mean, it's you know, a new antenna or something. Like that, before you stomp on it, should you take a picture and send it to you guys? Absolutely. Or collect it. Or, or, or collect it mm-hmm. and save it for us. And uh, we'll be happy to send somebody out to, to get that from you to identify it. Or you can bring it to our office and we can do identification there as well. Does that happen very often? Um. Uh, yeah, actually, really? quite frequently. Yeah. Well, for a young kid like you, well, what about you, right, Dr. Right. Chris? <laughs> what the? That there's something you haven't seen. Well, I still see <laughs> some things I haven't seen, but uh, you know, I've been around for a long time. Yeah. And I hung out with some terrific taxonomists over at the university, so I've got to see a lot of neat things over there. Mm. But uh, a lot of times, people say, "Well, I tell you, I never, I've got something here you never saw before." He said, "Well, that's pretty common." He says. Well, I've never seen it. There's a lot of things you've never seen, you know. Right. Um, one of well, the that, that goes I, beyond the insect world, by the way. I'd like to make a comment on the mosquito treatment. Uh, okay. There's a lot of companies that do mosquito treatment. And quality of service is a very important aspect of mosquito treatment. I mean, you can come in and, and, and uh, kind of zip-zop. Uh, you've got the, the uh, application done and you're gone. And usually that's built around price. Uh, and we spend a lot of time making sure that we're getting the insecticide in the foliage areas underneath of eaves and, and soffits of homes and other resting places so that you really do have a long-standing uh, mosquito uh, control program going on. Well, that's, you know, one of the reasons why you're so successful. It, it, it's not just about mosquitoes as a a Long-time customer myself of your company, uh, there's no question that it's all about the service and, and, and how thorough you are and you work as a partner uh, with the homeowners. There's just no doubt about that. Well, and we, give our, we give our technicians a, a, the time they need to do a proper service, and that's really important. Right. right. Whatever, whatever time it takes. Right. Yep. Dr. Chris Christensen, Matt Christensen, thanks for being our guest. This has been Local Matters, a service of LM Communications Radio Group, brought to you by Citizens Commerce Bank. Switch one time for a lifetime. See you next time for the next edition of Local Matters.